0: Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. Today is February 9th. It is a Thursday and we are on Meet Kevin Report number 18. Thank you so much for joining again. Okay, lots to talk about today. Consumers, inflation, what the heck is happening in the world politically? What's going on? First of all, a few um, condolences. First of all, Senator John Fetterman is Democrat he is in the hospital uh, potentially uh, there's some rumors that he may have had another stroke he's previously had a he's previously recovered from a stroke uh, and now he's in the hospital again so obviously best wishes to a speedy recovery there doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat no n- nobody deserves uh, to go through health issues unfortunately many of us do and there are many of us who are unfortunate uh, and, uh, and and uh, you know su- suffer, suffer from ailments no people don't deserve to so I, I really wish the best for everyone And knock on wood that everybody can recover healthily from any of the issues they have. Unfortunately, then you have to look at Turkey and uh, Syria. You've got uh, nearly 14,000 dead now thanks to the earthquakes, uh, which is absolutely terrible. And and I think what's uh, additionally devastating, I can't say more devastating because any loss of life is already devastating. It it, uh, it always hurts me. um, Is is that right now we are entering the phase, as, as you're listening to this, we are entering the phase where some people who are actually alive under the rubble of collapsed apartment buildings and homes were sitting at their breakfast tables or their dining tables, their couches, their beds, working in their offices, uh, you know, maybe on their laptops, just like uh, we might be right now, uh, are, are uh, suffering uh, without food or water now for coming on uh, over 48 hours. And uh, unfortunately, that is not good. Uh, there is, uh, uh, time, time is against everyone under the rubble right now, and, and uh, getting uh, getting emergency support and aid to those in Turkey is not easy, especially since uh, Turkey's been suffering from massive governmental upheaval over uh, insane levels of inflation. I mean, we're talking 80 to 90 percent inflation, down to a, a low of 69 percent. You actually had Twitter that was banned in Turkey, but the ban being lifted just yesterday, as folks see Twitter potentially as a communicating tool for this uh, emergency, which uh, is is terrible. A that it was banned in the first place, and obviously B uh, the the uh, earthquake issues uh, are, are so devastating. But it's it's something something to remember is a lot of people uh, make fun of. Uh, you know the the building requirements that exist, uh, for example, here in California. Uh, and I know a lot of people that come from Florida or from Europe, and they're like, uh, and I'm talking more like Western parts of Europe, and they're like, Kevin, why, why your homes are built out of wood out here? This that's insane. That seems so cheap. You know, we build homes out of cinder block and brick. And I'm like, yeah. Well, you deal with hurricanes, and and uh, and, and uh, you know, there's always this belief that oh, California builds homes cheap. And one of the things that I've learned in construction is that one of the beautiful things about wood is that it is flexible and that it can move. Uh, but the the amount of building standards that go into earthquake retrofitting in new construction today versus old construction is ridiculous. And this is by no means to, to say that Turkey made any kind of mistakes. We have old homes here in California as well in earthquake zones that are not earthquake retrofitted. I mean, we have homes that sit on foundations that are basically just stacked blocks uh, and and a home could easily fall off of those foundations in an earthquake, but you look at some of the new construction that's built now, and, and what goes into uh, earthquake uh, support uh, for for these structures is incredible, and you just you just don't have that in old buildings, uh, let alone in Turkey. And so so they, these these things they just collapse, uh, and it's so terrible. Uh, so it's it's pretty devastating. So I wanted to start with that today. Uh, moving on. And sort of on the note of Twitter, uh, apparently uh, Twitter has around 290,000 subscribers for Twitter Blue worldwide now. This is from uh, The Informer. 62% of those are in the United States, so about uh, every 6 and 10. It is worth noting that Twitter Blue just released the option for you to uh, tweet a long tweet rather than these 140 character limited tweets. Now this I've actually really enjoyed. Uh, You should follow me at RealMeetKevin on Twitter. And the first long tweet that I sent, I would love to share with you here. Uh, It is the following, finally, long tweets, threads suck. And it's true, threads are like terrible, absolutely terrible. Uh, you try to read the Twitter files and you go through the threads. You get confused in terms of which wait wait, wait, wait you're on number thirteen. Where'd number fourteen go? And then you click over there. You're like, oh, there's fourteen. Oh, but wait, why seventeen? it is a disaster. So finally, long tweets are here. So I uh, uh, you know I've been uh, uh, this is my first uh, long tweet here. So uh, it uh, it uh, just repeats uh, flip flopper over and over again. You know I'm I'm doing sort of the 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 what's it called. Um, uh, you you, you, you got you to gotta have your punishment, right? So you have to write on the board 27 times what you did wrong. <laughs> uh, I, I, I actually, I don't blame myself for being a flip-flopper. I think I'll always be a flip-flopper. But the nice thing is, Uh, anytime I flip-flop, you can see that transformation here and you could watch me flip-flop and it costs you zero. You just press the little subscribe button and you could watch me flip-flop. In fact, if you wanna get notifications for my flip-flop, you could download the totally free Meet Kevin app in the Apple or Android app store. By the way, we are working on an update for that app. So that way you could choose what notifications do you want? Normal videos, live stream videos, or short content. So I think that'll be really cool. So stay tuned for that uh activision blizzard and just had the united kingdom's antitrust regulators come out and suggest that the 75 billion dollar activision blizzard acquisition by microsoft would end up hurting gamers in the united kingdom dealing another blow to activision This was actually a play that for a while Warren Buffett was playing as an arbitrage bet, although it seems that recently he's been reducing his position and exposure to this thanks to the uh, regulatory concerns. Keep in mind that the FTC in November sued Activision Blizzard and Microsoft to block the deal. Yikes. Canada Solar potentially poised, or Canadian solar, I should say, uh, poised to grow faster than peers in 2023 with potentially sales exceeding expectations. The solar industry has been pretty dang resilient, uh, although we'll see if we end up seeing any kind of softness going into uh, the rest of 2023 as the housing market potentially starts showing some red flags. We'll talk a little bit about Enphase and their earnings a little bit later in this video. China is cutting rates again for homes. And one of the crazy things that's happening in China, and we won't go super deep on this, but I I wanna just sort of give this little uh, indicator here. One of the things that I'm noticing happening in China is people are very skeptical to, to spend again. Now don't get me wrong, they're spending on travel and entertainment, but they're very skeptical to spend on goods and real estate. And that's very interesting because real estate is the bulk of the Chinese economy. And consumerism is only about 32% of the uh, Chinese economy, although that's expected to substantially rise this year, given the real estate slowdown. But boy, you know, you're in this really weird situation in China where I, I personally believe, and I think the Chinese are pretty smart for this. I think the Chinese realized when the lockdown started, they're gonna have to save their own money. They're not going to get helicopter money like we did in America. And they did so very well. But in addition to that, They don't necessarily trust the idea that you should just go out there and jolly lolly spend everything. And if something bad happens, the government's gonna come bail you out again because A, the government didn't in China and B, the government probably won't. So pretty incredible uh, to it because there there are obviously a lot of fears that China's reopening is going to lead to this surge of inflation. But so far, I I don't know, you know, it it doesn't seem like that uh, reopening is materializing. Uh, as, uh, as as well as it potentially should, <laughs> so uh, wild. Yeah, we'll talk about that end phase best earnings report ever, Kyle. It, it actually wasn't the best earnings report ever, but stay tuned. I'll show you exactly why. I know why headline it might seem that way, so you're not wrong to say that some of the headline numbers were the strongest ever. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that you could blame uh, a, a cheap construction. I don't think you could do that. Uh, I think you you have to uh, remember that uh, really, even in the United States, before the uh, Northridge earthquake just, you know, 30 years or so ago, the earthquake standards here were not that great. You know, any home built in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the earthquake standards are not very strong. So this is not a matter of cheap construction. In fact, people say homes were built expensively in the 1950s. They used redwood, after all, which is termite resistant. Uh, it's 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 not a matter of cheap construction. It's a matter of the minimum building standards were just not elevated uh, to, to the levels that we have today until, quite frankly, I, I would say the last 25 years. Uh, you know, I live in a 2008 home. Uh, And I feel very grateful that I live in a 2008 home. It has fire sprinklers. Uh, It's extremely uh, earthquake retro, uh, well, not retrofitted. It was built to a very high earthquake standard. Uh, And that's not to say I want to be in an earthquake, but let's just say I feel much more comfortable in this than what I used to live in, which didn't have insulation in the walls, didn't have fire sprinklers, uh, you know, my first home, uh, and and didn't have retrofitting uh, for earthquakes. So you know, it's, it, oh, you lived through Earthquake, ouch, uh, it says Armando here. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Mustafa, you know, I I, I I can't say that it's cheap construction. I think it's just old construction, you know, and I think when we look at today's building standards versus the old stuff, it's like, wow, that's how you guys did it back then? It was bad, you know, it was really, really bad. Mm-mm. So, all right, now, we've got to talk about uh, this, and, and I think, uh, very, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is going to be very brief. But I find this very interesting. And I'm mostly opening this up because I'm very curious to see what your commentary is on this later. So, stand by for one second, okay. All right, oops. So Piers Morgan had a piece on his show talking about a child grooming. This is basically where sex is taught to children under nine years old. And I just want to know what you think about the blonde lady's response, okay? Wait for the blonde lady's response. And uh, keep in mind, I have a seven-year-old and five-year-old, and they don't need to know about sex ed at this age, okay? But I just want to hear what you think about the blonde girl's response, because in my opinion, it's mind-blowing as a parent, that somebody would say that. But but let's listen in here for a moment.
1: About being proud to be gay, no, it's about being teach, proud to you be you, can You can teach yeah. Yeah. To be
0: tolerance and understanding, but not at four, five, six, Fine. seven, I eight, don't or know, we, we actually do do that, aside as from all
1: of this, we actually teach sex quite explicitly in heterosexual relationships from a really young age. You actually have children in nativity plays where you're playing a mother who has an immaculate conception and then gives birth to a baby. What are you teaching and about? How you're talking
0: about that? If you've ever, yeah, exactly. as I have done, Uh, you gotta be kidding me. Her argument is that, oh, teaching sex to young children is already normalized because kids play house. What kind of crazy, cracked up argument is that? Sorry, I had to get that out of the way. (laughs) It was just like, I saw that and I basically vomited. Uh, I'm like, my kids playing house is not them learning about sex. It's them playing house. Okay, mommies have babies. That's what they do. That doesn't mean they're now fully sexually groomed. Ugh. Sorry. So some of some of the things that we're gonna touch on, I, I just get somewhat angry about, and I'm sorry, I have to do it. Um, all right. Anyway, now, oh, here's another thing I could get angry about because that's just the way it works, I guess. Uh, okay. So look, oh, man. Okay. So homelessness. Homelessness is such a disaster in California, and the California government is such an abject failure that you will not believe what LA County is spending on homelessness in 2023. And you won't believe how many homeless there are receiving that number. Now, it is absolutely ridiculous. Before I tell you how ridiculous that number is, I want you to consider for a moment my insane, as I was called, I was called insane and I was called, you know, like a militia man. I was called crazy things about locking people up or whatever, which is just insane, by the way. But I was called crazy things when I ran for governor in 2020 because I had what I thought was an incredible plan for solving homelessness. Imagine my plan quickly for a moment, okay? First of all, how about this? emergency and immediate support for mental health. How about starting there? How about actually making it so that a homeless person who wants to talk to a doctor doesn't have to go in a six-month queue? And how are they going to get through the general care process and then get to a mental health professional in Los Angeles. They don't, it's impossible. Because A, you're not even capable of getting yourself there because you don't have any money. And B, even if you did, you have to wait six months. And by then, who knows how many drugs you've taken? It's absolutely disgusting. Living on the streets in California is extremely dangerous. You are substantially more likely to die living on the street than if you're not living on the street. That should be obvious. But let me put it this way. You've probably got a murder or death rate amongst the homeless population around 15 to 20%. When you walk through your daily life, you don't walk around thinking I've got a 15 or 20% chance of dying today. Okay, that's what the homeless population has to deal with. Now, Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of issues that lead to homelessness that need to be solved. We need more housing in California. We need eviction support services that are much more robust and capable rather than villainizing landlords. We have to recognize that a lot of the population in California, thanks to the terrible California school systems, which rank 40th Out of 50, that's bottom 20%, by the way, in the United States, uh, maybe people are just undereducated and just don't have the opportunity to actually get out of a state of economic despair. So so when you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, you realize when I ran for governor in California, I ran under the premise that, you know, we need to solve the causes of homelessness, right? We've got to solve the education disparity. We've got to solve the economic gap. We've got to solve the lack of housing. And these are all things that can be solved. We can build more homes very quickly. We just need a governor that will actually lead the charge, not the kind of governor that we have now, who says things like, hey, we want people to be able to build more accessory dwelling units, and we're going to mandate that cities approve permits within 60 days so that homeowners can turn their garages into accessory dwelling units. Governor says that. Guess what actually happens at the city level? City says, yeah, Oh, we'll review your paperwork for two years, and we might deny you because you might be in a fire zone. Oh wait, all of California's in a fire zone. Guess we ain't doing ADUs. Whoops! And what does the governor do? Nothing because he got to go to the Google campus and talk about how great it was that they were passing SB7 and all these bills that suggest, all oh, housing's gonna be so much easier in California, and what practically happens? God awful nothing, because the government of California is an abject failure, and it ha- it's not because the people, it's not because of the bureaucrats, it's because of the leaders. The leaders don't have any balls, because the people who try to run for governor in California, the exception of me, because I wasn't born in America and I can't do it, Usually, they try to end up setting themselves up to run for president. So, they set themselves up to run for president by basically coasting through the governorship in California, not rocking the boat like Mr. Gavin Newsom, so they could end up running... For president and then guess what happens in the meantime all the judges want to be your buddy in California because if you do end up becoming president those California judges want federal appointments or maybe maybe they could even get to the Supreme Court so the system is highly highly broken and look I'm not mr tinfoil hat I think many of you know that I'm so aggressively in the middle and, uh, you know, I consider myself a JFK-style Democrat, although even saying that these days pisses people off. I like to say I'm forty-nine. okay? That's what I like to say. Republican, Democrat, Democrat, Republican, whatever. In the middle. Now, what is really incredible about that is listen to sort of my idea here or, or on homelessness and then listen to what's actually happening, okay? So, in addition to solving for housing, mental health, and obviously support services like being able to provide medical care for people and also fixing our school system by actually teaching people trades or white-collar professions so they can graduate high school being capable of functioning in our economy rather than floundering debating do i want tens of thousands of dollars of student debt, or do I actually want to start working at 18, right? That should not be a question. You should have the skills you need at 18 to get a job that you could live off of. You should be able to build a career at 18. That's what we were going to build. But anyway, I didn't become governor. Got almost a million votes though, and came second place for the recall candidates. But anyway, my plan for homelessness was very, very simple. In the areas that we have homelessness, which what's crazy about this is some people are like, wait, you can't do that in our areas. And I'm like, dude, you have all the homelessness already. (laughs) But anyway, in the areas where the homelessness problems exist, we create emergency facilities that provide everything you need. A bed, food. Uh, medical care, like triage style medical care, obviously. I mean, if we can have onsite mental health, great as well. Uh, provide all the services that you need. If you fall into the level of despair that you have to sleep on the floor. But guess what? There's only one, there, there are two, two big rules. Rule number one is you can leave anytime you want. These are not like handcuffed facilities. These are not places that you have to go to. And then of course people respond and go, well, why would you go there then? It's simple. Because their second big rule, and this is really what I call the number one big rule, is nobody sleeps on our streets in California. Because when people sleep on our streets, they dramatically increase the likelihood of dying. They make other Americans and Californians feel unsafe. They hurt tourism. They hurt our economy. And they hurt the mental health of the individuals who are sleeping on the street. And they increase the drug problem that we have on our streets. And they increase the mental health problem. There is no good that comes out of sleeping on the streets in California. So, my plan says, look, you don't have to go check in, but every time you fall asleep on the street, you're going to just happen to respawn at one of our facilities. And that means either you come with us or you start walking on your way or we take you there. It's very simple. And, hey, we can take you there, have a bagel, brush your teeth, take a shower, pop on some, you know, donated clothes or whatever. And if you want to go walk all night long, fine. But if you fall asleep, you're going right back. And it would be challenging. Don't get me wrong. The first few months of this would be difficult. And we would do it with the National Guard for the first few months. But guess what? I promise you within six months, there would not be a single person in California sleeping on the street or dying on the streets anymore due to homelessness. Because people will realize, damn, if I could go here and have a bed and have food and a shower and clothes... Why would I sleep on the floor? Especially if they're just going to bother the crap out of me and pick me up and keep throwing me in here. And they can get up and leave all the time they want. And the idea then is, what have you done? You've centralized the homelessness problem. Now you start solving why people are falling into homelessness. You solve mental health, you solve the housing, you solve the education. That's going to take a long time. But at least immediately, now you've concentrated where everybody is. And guess what? Oh, hey, good to see you again, Robert. Hey, by the way, you know, so-and-so's coming in today. They've got job opportunities paying 17 bucks an hour. If you're interested, they'll be here at 10. And guess what? You actually can now centralize the support services to try to reintegrate people in the economy. And don't get me wrong, not everybody's going to look at that and go... Yeah, okay, I'll work. Not everybody's going to want to do that. There are going to be some people that might never leave sort of the the trap of homelessness. But listen instead to what California is doing. As of September in 2022, the latest homelessness count for LA County is 69,144. California has accounted for 30% of the country's homeless population, despite making up less than 12% of the entire country's population. That is obviously in part because California has, well, at least Southern California has some of the best weather in the world. The weather that the Southern California coastline has only exists in 7% of the world's land. That's it, okay? And it is the only place in the United States that has the weather system that we do, which is the Mediterranean chaparral climate. Basically, nearly, I'd say 80 to 90% of the time, you're looking at 72 degrees year-round, no clouds. It's insane. It's beautiful. But what is LA County doing? Oh, LA County has about 69,000 homeless folks, and they're spending a record $609 million on homelessness this year. That amounts to almost $10,000 being spent per homeless person, and guess what? When you drive around LA, what do you have? Homeless on the streets, homeless dying on the streets, homeless in tents at the side of highways, all over the place, people getting accosted, people dying, the drug problem getting worse, the mental health issue getting worse. Everything is a complete disaster. And at the same time as homelessness is increasing in California, like downtown San Diego just hit a record for six months in a row of more homelessness, what are other states doing? Oh wow, states like Florida are actually managing to decrease their homeless population because imagine this, they're actually funding emergency shelter, supportive housing, job training and mental health treatment. Holy smokes, what I ran on two years ago. Actually, it's almost slightly more than two years ago now, which is crazy already to think about. But uh, more than two years ago, that's what I ran on. That's insane, it's absolutely insane that California can't figure it out. Uh, The richest state by GDP in the country and can't figure it out. Potentially the, uh, let's see, Turkey and Germany just boosted up. So we're probably around the seventh largest economy in the world, sixth or seventh, somewhere around there, depending on how you count India uh, and and Germany in there. But anyway, sad, really sad. That's my take, had to get it out of the way. I'm sorry, you know, some people like Kevin, that, that sounds too aggressive. You know what? What we're doing now is aggressively stupid. And I don't know if it's because you got uh, a Democrat problem I, I, or it's because you've got a Republican counter problem. I don't think that's the problem because let me make it very simple. California happens to be a super majority of Democrats. Now, I'm not trying to offend people who are Democrats. I'm just saying, California happens to have all the power, literally, in one party, this is a one-party state, and 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 I'm not I'm not saying that California is like Joe Biden has the presidency and the House and the Senate. It's a little different in our legislature. So we have the governor who's a Democrat. We've got the Assembly, uh, and uh, we, we've got the House in California. And guess what? When you put it all, or the Senate California, when you put it all to the Assembly, sort of like the House version, you've got the Assembly, the Senate, and the governorship. All of them Democrats. And guess what? They have not a 50-50 majority, they have a supermajority in every chamber. So, governor's obviously a Democrat, each congressional house, well, legislative house, we call it here, uh, supermajority of Dems. In other words, if, uh, if there was any even potential of a Republican governor coming in, the legislature could just veto anything the Republican governor does, anything, because they have a supermajority of control. And some people are like, oh, but Kevin, you know, back in the day, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was a Republican. Yeah. Didn't have a super majority of Democrats in the legislature then. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. That's all I got to say. All I got to say. And it drives me nuts. All right. Next. So let's see here. <sighs> uh, ha ha. Ah, Armando, you're making too much sense. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, I am definitely not going to run for something in 2024. Definitely not. (laughs) I am going to run House Hack. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, I don't know that people just don't care. I think you don't have leadership with balls in California. (laughs) I think it's simple. Uh, Of course, nothing actually in practice is simple. Everything takes hard work, but you need people willing to do that. And if you don't have people willing to try, then you may as well just roll over and die. It's stupid. All right, what is next? Next up, we got to talk about Tesla. All right, stand by. We'll talk about Tesla in just a moment. Let's check in on Bloomberg for just a moment. How do these guys respond?
1: When we disinvert, someday we're not going to have curve inversion. And I wonder what the world's going to look like. I'm fascinated Ooh. also, Tom, just the, the process of price discovery in private markets yeah. over the next year. Well, uh, and a, a lot of people certainly. saying, if you don't discover the price, maybe it didn't happen. <laughs> just like that. That's very philosophical. <laughs> that is.
0: I've heard that before. <laughs> nice, Lisa. That's Thanks, nice, nice. Oh, yeah. You that You know, sometimes I click over to Bloomberg. And they're just talking the biggest nonsense ever. I think they just get bored in the mornings and they have no idea what to talk about. It's ridiculous. <sighs> Bloomberg, I don't know, I, I, who knows. All right, we need to talk about Tesla. Tesla, Tesla, Tesla. Wow, Tesla blew it out of the park with manufactured vehicles in China, 66,051 manufactured vehicles in China, up 18.4% from December. BYD still beat Tesla, though, shipping 150,164 vehicles, but remember, BYD ships a vehicle that is about half as expensive, and only about half of their vehicles are actually fully electric. Uh, You've got a lot of hybrids in there and still a lot of traditional ICE vehicles. The overall passenger uh, vehicle market in China uh, is sitting at about 1.24 million cars uh, produced. Production is expected to ramp back up in China as uh, about 80% according to the Economist, of Chinese have been exposed to or have caught COVID and folks are expecting to be well back to work. Uh, the current targets for production in uh, at Giga Shanghai at Tesla are somewhere around 20,000 units a week starting in late February or March Lee auto Xping Motors and Neo all had monthly and year-over-year declines uh, in in sales uh, and I, that might be because Tesla's price cuts are putting substantially heavy pressure on other manufacturers which are not profitable or are barely profitable. Now, I got a lot of heat when I started talking about this on TikTok. On TikTok, I made a video talking about how Rivian, from a gross profit point of view, takes or it costs Rivian 271 bucks to generate a hundred bucks of revenue. That's disgusting from a gross profit point of view. That basically means you've got about 1500 bucks being spent to make somewhere around like 580 bucks. Rough math. Okay. It's insane how much money they spent just on a gross profit point of view. Don't even look at net income because you know Rivian's losing money like crazy. Tesla, on the other hand, uh, right now, when they bring in a hundred bucks of revenues, looking at somewhere around $20, uh, of, uh, $20 to $25 of gross margin, and maybe around 15 to 17% of net. Uh, and that depends on how conservative you want to be on the estimates, right? Technically, in the last quarter, we were closer to a gross margin of 25%. But we've gotten some heads up warnings that we expect that to compress a little bit. But the point is Tesla is wildly profitable while other companies are not. BYD bringing down about a buck 40 to the bottom line in their earnings relative to Tesla, as we've said, somewhere around 17 to 20 bucks. It's insane. Now I got in a little bit of heat on TikTok for Rivian because people are like, oh, well, when Rivian was small and just doing 7,000 vehicles or or when Tesla was small, just doing 7,000 vehicles, they were losing money too. And then what I did is I went back to the 2014 numbers, which roughly aligned. Tesla sold and manufactured around 7,300 vehicles and Rivian did about 7,600, 7,700 in the last quarter. So when you align that, you're like, okay, they're, they're roughly a similar manufacturing stage. Well, we already know that Rivian's gross profit margin is an abject failure. You're looking again at spending 271 bucks per $100 of revenue gross. I'm not talking OPEX here. I'm not talking about advertising or SG, you know, SG uh, selling in general, uh, administrative expenses or research and development. I'm not talking about your OPEX. I'm talking about gross profit, abject failure, gross profit. Well, if you look at Tesla back in 2014, when they were manufacturing just as many vehicles as Rivian was, guess what their gross profit was then? Remember, Rivian right now, negative 271 per hundred bucks. Tesla per hundred bucks, still bringing 20 bucks to the bottom line in 2014. So I made a follow-up TikTok talking about that. And guess what the morons in the comments said then? Oh, sure. Pick the quarter where that makes sense. And I'm like, you moron. I picked the quarter where the production aligned relative to the most recent quarter for Rivian. It's like some of these people have their heads so far up their own behinds. I think they're just blind bag holders who don't understand the basic premises of fundamental analysis. People don't get it. I Look, if you are an investor, you should so crystal clearly be able to divide fundamentals from technicals. And if you don't understand the differences... You should probably not be investing in stocks. Start with something easy, like real estate. Even though the irony is probably at least half of you don't actually own real estate, but that's okay because I think when you watch my channel, eventually you're going to get convinced to buy real estate. Not from me. It's not like I'm trying to earn a commission off you, but because I think that's actually going to help you substantially catapult your wealth. Unless, of course, you already have a net worth of over a million bucks. So with that said, I think smart people realize that... Why did Tesla have this horrible price uh, correction last year? Nothing to do with fundamentals or maybe nominally. The biggest thing was, was the easiest trend ever to short because Elon was selling like crazy thanks to Twitter and there was no end in sight in terms of how many Tesla shares Elon was going to dump just to fund Twitter. This is the easiest short ever. The technical, from the technical point of view, once you start the short trend, guess what happens? The algos and the institutional hedge funds, managing those algos, they come out, not even just the hedge funds, all the institutions, they come out and go, easy, short. Oh, okay, going into recession, what should we do? Oh, okay, yeah, let's go buy uh, Costco and McDonald's, which are, you know, like McDonald's is an abject joke as well to be investing in, but it's performed a lot better year over year than Tesla. Why? Because, oh, yeah, the technicals say, let's go in a recession from growth to staples. And then eventually we'll go Back. it's very simple okay it's so that way when they answer the phone to their complaining customers about us going into a recession the pension fund managers the hedge fund managers the institutions the banks the morgan stanley's whatever are able to go ah don't worry we're going into a recession we have moved from growth to staples because obviously you still have to buy toothpaste in a recession right oh yeah that yeah, makes sense it's so dumb it is so dumb in the short term The kind of technical movements that you get in the stock market. The good news is, in the long term, the fundamentals tend to shine through. Much kind of like we just heard. Two, nearly two years later, after the April of 2021 fatal crash in Texas, where two dudes launched a Model S on a small roadway, hit a turn, took the turn too fast, car drives into a tree, bursts into flames. What happens after it bursts into flames? The dude in the front climbs to the back because the car catches fire in the front. Who knows what happened if he was injured or whatever. Couldn't get out. Both of them died, which is terrible. Turns out the guy was drunk while he was driving. And and I don't mean like you had a beer like eight hours ago. The guy tested twice the legal limit. That's that's deep, okay, that's really drunk. I mean, look, this is not to at all justify, like no, nobody should ever drink after having alcohol, right? Uh, but let's just be real, I would venture to say 80% of adult drivers who are not Mormons or who don't otherwise just not drink have probably had a beer or a glass of wine at a dinner somewhere and then have driven at some point thereafter, okay? Okay. But this guy was, this was much more. It's twice the legal limit. You're talking about like probably six to nine shots of alcohol for a dude, okay, to be twice the legal limit. I mean, you are plastered to be twice the legal limit. You probably couldn't even walk at all if you wanted to. Uh, okay. Maybe even not that extreme, but, but it's, it's gonna, you're gonna have a hangover the next day. Let's put it this way. Anyway. So anyway, the guy's drunk, drives into a tree, the thing bursts into flames, they died. The big media story that comes out around it is Tesla crashes into tree, bursts into flames. No one is in the driver's seat. Must have been the guy showing off autopilot. And because the guy showed off autopilot and autopilot failed, clearly these poor people died thanks to elon musk's autopilot that was literally the news story two years ago you had scumbags like the la times say where are the regulators why are cars allowed to drive themselves with nobody in the passenger seat which i just said a lot of things so let's unpackage that for a moment I had an hour and a half long interview with the editorial board of the Los Angeles Times when I ran for governor. And guess what? All it was, was a 90 minute opportunity to find any opportunity to write a hit piece on me so they could prop Gavin Newsom up on the pedestal. There was zero abject interest in actually understanding the perspectives that I was sharing. Scumbags. Don't like that. It's rude. And it's wrong. It's not what consumers and voters in California deserved. But that's the mainstream media for you. They got to keep stroking the guy in charge. So that way they get invited to his press conferences. It's ridiculous. <sighs> okay. The LA Times allegation out of the way. Let's go back to what they wrote. So what did they wrote? Or what did, what did the, uh, the mainstream media write? Oh, where are the regulators? Where are the regulators? Tesla crashes into tree. People die in flames. Where are the regulators? Oh, wait. What comes out now? Oh, wow. Uh, No self-driving or any autopilot features were actually enabled. The car crashed without any automated or ADAS support systems activated. Finally, we find that out two years later, but that's after the story already broke. That's sad. But not only is that sad, (laughs) you have no one, well, with the exception of some folks on Twitter doing, doing, uh, you know, God's work, so to speak, uh, you have nobody, uh, no, no mainstream media admitting, uh, uh, the disgustingness of their headlines, suggesting that without any conclusion, oh, okay, well, because the guy was found in the back, it must've been autopilot, even though that's not how autopilot works. Like you have to, you have to somehow be able to engage the steering wheel to actually be able to function on autopilot. Uh, 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 mainstream media doesn't want to take the L for it because it's embarrassing. Anyway, here you go. NTSB reports uh, in a report released Wednesday showed evidence indicated that the driver of the Tesla Model S hadn't engaged any of the ADAS features before crashing in Houston in uh, April of 2021. Two cars occupants died. Initially, a local constable said he believed the Model S had operated without anyone in the driver's seat when it crashed into a tree. Uh, but that was also very quickly dispelled because the fire department realized, wait a minute, the steering wheel is damaged, implying the person wasn't wearing a seatbelt. True with the seatbelt. Uh, but anyway, uh, they, the damage on the steering wheel implied that when the impact happened, the person probably hit their head on the steering wheel, which is pretty crappy. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, here's just another sort of, um, finally after two years, finally, uh, some relief uh, and justification showing that Tesla, once again, was not at fault, but that, that doesn't make for a good media story. Uh, anyway, now it's worth looking just briefly, since we've gotten over some of the anger around Tesla and the mainstream media, it's worth looking a little bit at the fundamentals because, yes, Tesla has officially broke $200. Now, one of the things that is fascinating is myself and the team, just a few days ago, when we were in the race for Uh, uh, you know, to see if we could hit $200 before the expiration of the coupon code uh, for the programs on Building Your Wealth, uh, which, which, um, uh, you know, we we just hit $200. But anyway, we we were talking about this belief that we have that once Tesla breaks $200, uh, it would probably rip past $200. And in pre-market right now, it's sitting at 208. I think today will be the test To see, now that we have officially closed past 200 yesterday at 201.29, will we rip past 200? Uh, That is just a belief that we have as it's bounced basically straight up off of this Fibonacci curve. Uh, And so we'll keep an eye on it. In the past, Tesla used to have these like 27 to 30-ish day runs of uh, the stock market being open. What does that put us at now? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Right. based on uh, old school history, we should have at least another five days. <laughs> which is interesting because you got CPI coming up next week. But anyway, let's look at some fundies for a moment. So going back to fundies, I haven't really changed anything here. I'm taking about a 10% take rate on FSD, which is extremely low, but I'm doing that on purpose. Uh, on the 10% take rate on FSD for 15K because there is the monthly uh, software as a service option where basically you can pay a monthly fee for FSD. And so I'm lowering the cash that goes into Tesla basically right out of the gate for uh, 2025. My 2025 projection is a million vehicles fewer than what Kathy Wood is projecting, although she's got some pretty uh, pretty ambitious targets, let's just say. There's no shade on Kathy. okay? I love Kathy. I think she's a brilliant marketer. Uh, but but I think some of the numbers are too ambitious, but that's okay. Maybe I'm just being a little bit more conservative and that's okay. Everybody can have a different point of view. Revenue per vehicle, I'm at about 47,000. I think she's right around 46,000. So we're pretty close on that. But anyway, I put in about a 10% from FSD. I don't put in any revenue for insurance, semis, Tesla Bot, auto, taxis, or, or, or you know, self-driving taxis. I don't put anything in for that. I do put in about 10% for services, which mostly gets costed out because the margin's very low on services, although it's finally going positive. Uh, And uh, for for energy, I just put in basically 1% of total sales uh, represented by uh, about energy, which could end up being low. If I go with like a terribly low margin of 80%, which we should not be at a 20% gross profit margin in 2025, we should realistically be back at 25%. So we'll change that number in a moment. But if we leave it at 80%, uh, you're looking at a, a future price target based on a peg ratio of 1.67 at 30% assumed EPS growth. So if you think EPS is growing at 30% in 2025, 6, 7, 8, and then you assign a 1.6 peg, very, very traditional, very normal, you should be at at least 400 bucks uh, in 2025. Now, if I change this margin to uh, 75, so a 25% gross margin, you can see that quickly jumps to 5.11. Uh, so somewhere between 400 and 511 by 2025 seems very reasonable. But one of the downsides though, is that the present value has been skyrocketing. That is the ironic downside of the price going up is that your rate of return now on Tesla from when I've been previously making these videos uh, is, has dropped almost in half. Uh, it's dropped almost in half because the price is so much higher now. Now, don't get me wrong. It's still a phenomenal number. Even in, in the, uh, worse, worse worse-er case scenario. I don't think that's a word, uh, But even if at the 399 price target for 2025, you're looking at uh, somewhere around a 24% compounded annual rate of return. Now, keep in mind, while while I think what I'm talking about is financial and some people may see some of this as advice, I wanna be very clear, I'm not giving you personal advice, okay? I think I provide great advice on the channel, but I'm not providing personalized advice. I am a fi- financial advisor, but that's a very important difference is I'm not providing anyone, anyone. I don't do it. Personalized advice. I don't look at what the uh, heck is going on in your world and, and your portfolio and go, you should rebalance this to this, okay? That should be obvious, okay? Uh, but anyway, some people don't recognize that that's obvious. So anyway, uh, but I, I think this is this is still very, very good. This is with a worst case scenario number here, 24% year over year. Uh, but however, uh, Tesla's going to get to the point where, where this is going to start looking less attractive, right? Let's say this gets to 350 this year, right? So say Tesla runs to 350 this year, all of a sudden in your more worst case scenario, you're only looking at a 4% compounded annual rate of return. At that point, it makes sense to just dump everything and go all in on house hack. For me, not personalized financial advice, just saying. Now, if, if I go with uh, a, a different margin and I go a little bit, let me go more ambitious here, okay? Let me go 30% to see opportunity cost FOMO-wise, what you would then potentially miss out on. Go back to a 30% gross margin. Potentially, now you could be at a future value of 623, right? And so your, your compounded annual rate of return would then be 21%. So my expectation would have to be greater than that for investing in something else, which I think could be reasonable. Uh, especially since that is, that is probably a, a little bit more hopium. Maybe you're closer to that 25% level, so about a 13% annual compounded rate of return for about three years. So anyway, depending on how you play the numbers, uh, should, in my opinion, guide your, your investing thesis and, and your plans for the, for the company and for your investments. Obviously, I think that fundamentals are the most important thing when it comes to investing. Uh, and, uh, let me give you another, uh, brief, brief example. Okay. When it comes to growth rates, because this is very important, uh, some folks asked me yesterday, they're like, "Heaven, you know, Enphase had these great numbers. Why did it sell down? And, and I, I think people don't, you know, objectively really look at the fundamentals. I think generally people on the internet, uh, look at the headlines and then when they look at the headlines, they, what, make a conclusion based on those and don't actually pull up the financials. So I was asked, and this is this is valuable for Tesla as well, okay? So I was asked yesterday, hey, what's going on with Enphase? So I tweeted this. Uh, you can just follow me totally for free at Real Meet Kevin over here, right? Why is Enphase plummeting after great earnings with a quadruple beat, top line, bottom line, margin, and guidance? That's quad beat, okay? Simple. Well, I wrote, after hours trading is often low liquidity and undereducated training. Headline reading, not fundamentals. That's because after hours, Enphase was up like 10%. But what did Enphase close at yesterday? Well, Enphase closed like down 4% yesterday. So why is After Hours so different from when the market is actually open? Oh, wow, surprise, surprise, because you actually have people with, you know, big boy money uh, making decisions based often on fundamentals, but not always. Uh, could be based on technicals, right? But anyway, here are the problems, what the fundies show. You have a company whose growth rate used to be 30% a quarter, 20% a quarter, a quarter, and you ended with $724 million of revenue in the fourth quarter of uh, 2022. The projected revenue is expected to be 720 for the first quarter. That's the midpoint. Could be higher, could be a little lower. Well, that represents a negative growth rate quarter over quarter. And we understand there's a massive seasonal difference between going from Q4 to Q1, but especially in the solar world. But at the same time, your costs are going up by somewhere around 1,500 basis points and you're expecting a lower gross profit. So all of a sudden, you have a company that's growing like crazy, not growing like crazy anymore. And this is where if you go back to the Tesla fundies and you look over here and you go, well, if, if the growth rate it falls from 30% on earnings per share and let's say that growth rate just, uh, I don't know, let's say it goes down to 10%, okay? Well, 10% times one67 means you should only be trading for about a 16.7 times PE ratio, which that brings your, your price that you're, you're able to pay for the company to 170 bucks, which means you should sell it today, right? But nobody actually believes that Tesla's only going to grow at 10% on an earnings per share basis for the rest of the decade. Uh, that'd be crazy. If you believe that, do not invest in Tesla, right? So uh, that that's the point of having a, some form of stable peg ratio, 1.67 which then you adjust based on EPS to find out what kind of multiple you should be using for the company. You know, the reason you have companies like Ford uh, and GM selling for these incredibly low multiples is because their growth is like nothing or negative or because the CEO of Ford is a complete idiot. Well, maybe I shouldn't say he's a complete idiot. Well, let's just put it this way. I tweeted the other day. And again, another reason you should follow me at RealMeKevin on Twitter. It doesn't cost you anything to follow me over there. Uh, but I tweeted the other day this, uh, this clip of, uh, Ford CEO, Jim Farley on the earnings call. And I was so blown away because he's bragging about how they're going to make lots of money going forward. That's, that's what he was bragging about. How are we, how are we going to make lots of money going forward, uh, in, uh, in, in basically, uh, automotive. And he's asked by an analyst, hey, do you think you can get to a 20% gross margin, which is Tesla's worst case scenario, by the way, right? In other words, an analyst is going to Ford and going, Yo, do you think you can make it to Tesla's worst-case scenario? (laughs) And the CEO has the following to say about getting to the worst-case scenario. Basically, he starts off by saying, Well, no, basically not on the car, because we're still figuring out the manufacturing process. Even though we've been manufacturing for over 100 years, we can't figure out how to make an electric vehicle profitable. And we probably won't be profitable on electric vehicles until 2026. But here is where we can make real money, okay? This was just embarrassing, even the way he said it, okay? Ready for this? Listen to this. Not our
1: batteries, not the EV platforms, but our new, fully updatable electric architecture, because... What we've learned on Pro is we can make real money on software.
0: Not- Did you hear that? We can make real money on software. I mean, first of all, it sounds extremely creepy the way he said it. Uh, but but it's because they're sucking. It's insane. And sure, Mr. Steve, look, you know what? I appreciate you, Mr. Steve. Mr. Steve here says, and, and look, look, we love Steve. He's a course member. Steve and I, we're going to have great beer together one day. Uh, when my plane is back to flying, because it's going under a, war- it's under a warranty upgrade right now, we're going to do great stuff. Uh, Steve here says, GM is securing the battery supplies needed. Tesla's liking. That, that's fantastic. And so is Ford. Ford is also securing the supplies that they need to be able to make the vehicles that they need for the year. Ford said exactly the same thing. That does not make them profitable, though, on EVs. GM won't segment out their EVs and their EV profitability because they're not profitable. So you can secure the supply chains all you want. Uh, I'd rather, I'd I'd support your argument in saying that EV supply chains are probably going to have more of an issue, right? But uh, that doesn't mean you're actually going to be profitable. And this idea that, Ford's manufacturing quality is better than Tesla. I mean, this is like an age-old argument. Uh, Tesla has panel gaps and stuff like that. Let's talk about Ford's manufacturing though. But you know what? Rather than me make an argument uh, about Ford's manufacturing potential and quality or whatever, let's just look at what Ford's CEO said about their quality here, okay? Uh, so, uh, let's see here. Okay, here we go. The real future profitability on uh, EVs is basically what they call second cycle products. This basically means we suck at manufacturing EVs. And once we figure out what we're doing wrong, then we'll be able to finally be profitable. Maybe keep in mind, and you can just Google this. Nobody expects Ford to be profitable on EVs until 2026. That's three years from now, potentially three and a half years from now. If you look at the end of the year, more would be like 3.75, but anyway, we didn't know when we designed our first electric vehicles that we had basically wiring for our cars that was one mile or 1.6 kilometers longer than it needed to be. We didn't know that it's 75 pounds heavier than it needed to be. We didn't know that we underinvested in braking technology. Oh, that sounds fantastic. So look, I get it. Manufacturing is an iterative process. But you're taking an old dog and you're trying to teach him new tricks. Uh, look, don't get me wrong. Some of the old school Fords were great. Uh, uh, I should. I wish I could find that anecdote. Maybe I could find it really quick. There was an anecdote yesterday, and I realize it's an anecdote, so it's not uh, it, It's it's you know certainly not something that we could say is, is a is a fact right now. But let's look at four recalls. There was this dealer who yesterday on Twitter was uh, complaining about Ford's quality and again I realize this is an anecdote okay I hate it when people do that in politics and they don't flag that it's an anecdote where they're like oh well this is how it is because so and so says so it's like well it's an anecdote okay it's an anecdote but it's just something to pay attention to so uh a car dealership guy great guy you should follow him uh oh I don't know why I'm not following him there we go I followed him but anyway car dealership guy great guy uh hey he follows me Uh, Anyway, so uh, here he writes, Ford dealer unhappy with Ford. In 2012, Ford had 1.1 million recalls. In 2022, Ford had 9.8 million recalls. Ford should only have one goal, to build the best quality car in the world. Word of mouth would sell it, not rebates and not advertising. In my entire career, the quality can't be any worse and we are told it is now being addressed. Why wasn't it addressed 10 years ago? And he talks about the stat we just talked about, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, I don't know, again, like, you know, I don't want to come across as cherry picking, I don't think the car dealership guy is, like, abjectly, like, you know, only for Tesla, he writes some pretty neat things as well about, uh, about, like, Carvana, he pays a lot of attention to, uh, to what's going on with Carvana, uh, car auctions and such, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, uh, so, I, I, you know, I think he's worth a follow-up, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get him to do an interview so we could get a face reveal, but, but he thinks that, uh, a face reveal would end up hurting his ability to have people actually want to follow him. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I love the self-deprecating humor, but, uh, you know, anyway, so that is my thesis, my thesis. On uh, Tesla. <laughs> no, Steve, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, okay? Steve's like, haha, I just got wrecked. No, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, Steve. Okay, okay. Like, again, it's an anecdote. Maybe that's not actually what's happening. I don't know, right? It's just something we wanna pay attention to. Uh, and, and I guess the way I look at it is the frustration that I see by the CEO in the earnings call. Kind of reiterates a little bit of some of the issues that they have here, right? Uh, and and this this uh, this idea that uh, you know they, they won't they don't even expect themselves to be profitable. I think in the long term that's more important. I think ultimately companies sh- will probably get to the bottom of their quality issues, but who knows? Maybe not. Anyway, uh, that's my take on Tesla. Let's go ahead and listen to Bloomberg for a moment. See what's going on over here. There we go. A,
1: a sanctioned th- Dantalian of Oliver Wyman. Three N's. T-A-N-N-N. bomb. Wow. There we go. I mean, it was worth asking. you will never find me.
0: Okay. These guys are boring. Come on, man. Like, say something. Let's go over to CNBC. That seems like the same thing. They're they're not exactly the same QCIP, because there's they're common shares, are different classes. So we, we brought this to Goldman Sachs and said, right. hey, we're seeing hundreds of these types of trades, because it's not just Shell. There was other companies that have two different classes.
1: And they said, basically, whoops, uh, right. we didn't mean to be doing that. I mean, this goes back 10 years. Um, and so what they've told right. us is that they're, they're notifying clients. They're unwinding. These trades are not going to do these anymore. Uh, Steve Ballmer said he's going to amend his taxes. Right. And, and, but yeah. here's
0: the more complicated. Okay, oh, so- that's fascinating. How the secret, how the wealthy sidestep the wash sale ban. They just have different classes of shares. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, my God. Uh, too late now cat's out of the bag <laughs> uh anyway uh okay so i think it's worth doing a little uh bit of talking and talking about uh the fed we've got some talk to do about consumers cpi preview oh good lord we also have to talk about the uh, oh boy we've got oh man oh man we got a lot to cover <laughs> it's gonna be good we to talk about uh Nord Stream. i i tweeted about Nord Stream yesterday and people got mad at me now people are happy because of something that happened yesterday but anyway uh, let's, uh, let's briefly understand a little bit, uh, about what's going on, uh, with at least the latest in terms of Fed speak. Uh, and I'm also going to pull up the latest conditions. Actually, we could just go pop on over here. So, uh, Ooh, loosening again. Okay. Interesting. <sighs> All right. Let's go. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve and what's going on with financial conditions. The reason we want to talk about financial conditions is very, very clearly important because Jerome Powell, in his discussion with uh, Dave Rubin from the Washington DC Economics Club, asked Jerome Powell, or Jerome Powell was asked, hey, Jerome, you know, what do you think about this latest jobs report? And immediately, Jerome Powell responded and said, "Ah, well, financial conditions already tightened. Now, I thought that was really incredible, because you immediately had this response from Jerome Powell that suggested, hey, look, you know, we're just letting the market respond to the data right now, and we're going to respond to the data as it comes in. Now, that actually gives me a lot of confidence and faith, because it shows the market understands the challenge we face. We must get inflation down. And when reports come in hot, guess what happens? Treasury yields rise, and that's exactly what happened. Although today, they're softening a little bit. Now, right after the FOMC meeting, we were down at 3.38. Now we're sitting at about 3.59. Yesterday, we were in about the 3.6 range. We're still a good chunk, about 20 to 30 basis points higher than than where we were at the low just just about a week or so ago. But it's worth taking a look at uh, some of the analysis, some of the reports that we're seeing. So let's start with Goldman. Goldman here suggests the following. That macro data is trimming policy tails. And this argues that maybe rates could go lower or rates could go higher. And basically, they're suggesting here that they believe uh, that ultimately, monetary lags are going to be shorter than are commonly thought or traditionally thought. Now, that's actually a little bit bearish because it suggests that the Fed may potentially not be able to put too much weight on this idea that monetary policy is going to lag and we could just kind of get to a certain point and wait longer. They might end up being a little bit more aggressive if they need to. This is quite interesting because it's not the best and most bullish thing for markets to think, okay, if the Fed has to be more aggressive, then what do you end up with? Well, the following. The strengthening case for pricing a narrower path for the policy rate around the projected rate of five to five and a quarter percent, and this, in their opinion, translates to higher longer maturity yields. Basically, in English, yields could be higher for longer. And yesterday we got a little bit of Fed speak that ultimately gives us a path for how long could the Federal Reserve end up needing to keep policy restrictive especially if the lags that we think monetary policy have are not going to be as drawn out as maybe they had been in the past. In the past, we used to think that the Federal Reserve would raise rates and it would take about 18 months for those higher interest rates to actually trickle through the economy. Now the Federal Reserve says that lag could be as little as three to six months. It's pretty incredible. But that does mean the Federal Reserve has to be hawkish for longer. And the question from Goldman Sachs is, okay, well, uh, have have their recent discussions been hawkish? Well, according to Goldman, even though it seemed like Jerome Powell was dovish, the Goldman Sachs economists note that implications for the Fed path this year actually leaned a bit hawkish, particularly Powell's optimism on growth despite re- recent weakness in survey data. And that his observation was very clear that doing too little, was the most difficult risk to manage. Now, that's important because it aligns with some information that we got yesterday about how long does the Fed actually think they're going to keep rates high. Now, this is very important. We have believed, based on the bond market's expectations, that we would end up seeing the Federal Reserve cut rates by the end of the year. And if they cut rates by the end of the year, even though they say they're not going to cut rates by the end of the year, even though the bond market's pricing that in, it could happen if data continues to come in weak. However, yesterday, we had uh, Mr. Williams from the Federal Reserve unfortunately deliver a little bit of a blow to us. Uh, Mr. Williams said that not only is it reasonable to get to 5.1%, But we're going to need to maintain, quote, I'll just read you the quote. We're going to need to maintain, quote, that rate for a few years to make sure we get to 2% inflation. That's terrible. That's very bad. It is exactly the opposite of what the market has been pricing in. The market's been pricing in that we're going to get to a peak, we'll stay there for a few months and cut down. Now, this is just one person at the Fed. And it doesn't necessarily mean That because one person at the Fed thinks we need to maintain a rate of 5.1% for years that we are going to. But let's just say when this press conference happened, people were not very happy in the market. And guess who is a committee member on the Fed this year? Oh, Mr. Williams, the person who thinks rates should stay at 5.1% for years. That's not good. That's actually quite bad. And this is potentially because even though on one hand, Jerome Powell is talking about how disinflation could be uh, at least inferred as being dovish by markets, Jerome Powell is making it clear that, look, even though we're seeing disinflation in goods, we need to make sure we actually see disinflation materialize in housing and core services, which so far we have not yet seen, although we think leading indicators suggest they will, but we still haven't actually seen that come through. That potentially creates the risk that inflation is stickier than expected. This is a little bit of a risk factor. So now we consider, okay, well, what are markets pricing in right now? And we can see exactly that. There are a few places we can go. We could look at, first of all, financial conditions. I'm a big fan of watching financial conditions. The easiest way, in my opinion, that you could track financial conditions, is simply look at the 10-year treasury. The 10-year treasury is a very simple barometer. And anytime we see it loosen, we tend to see the Fed talk a little bit more aggressively. Anytime we see it soften uh, or, 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 or tighten, we tend to see the Fed talk a little bit more dovishly. So they seem to be very well driven by what's happening in the bond market, not necessarily what's happening in the stock market. Think about that. Jerome Powell doesn't talk about the stock market going up. He talks about financial conditions, which, yes, stocks are a part of, but they're a much smaller part of compared to or part of financial conditions relative to the weight that interest rates have. Interest rates are huge because they affect everything. They affect people's credit cards, their buy now pay later loans, the payment on the iPhone they want to borrow. If they're really stupid and want to buy a plane, uh, they, they could do that. And, and I want to be very clear about that. I think for 99% of plane purchases, they're absolutely stupid. The only reason you could ever remotely suggest it makes sense to have a plane is if for some reason you think it's some crazy uh, business investment that's actually going to be able to help you build a billion dollar company uh, because of uh, the insane plane, uh, plans that you have for creating phenomenal growth and cash flow at a startup that you might be creating, but short of that one percent uh, potential delusion uh, or reality, we'll see what happens. Knock on wood. No guarantees. Nobody should buy a plane. I don't know why I went down that tangent, but anyway, uh, <laughs> let's look at Goldman Sachs financial conditions. Goldman Sachs financial conditions index, and uh, and and we'll be able to see a little bit of what's going on uh, with financial conditions. And then we'll also be able to look at uh, what we think uh, traders are pricing in for the, 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 you know, rate increases with the Fed. So we're gonna pull up on screen right now, the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index. You can see that here. You can see that financial conditions were actually substantially low on the left side of the chart. You can see that here in the left side of the chart, you end up seeing that this is when the Federal Reserve actually ended printing money which is insane to think that in March of 2022, the Federal Reserve was still printing money. Absolutely insane. Insane. Okay. Since then, financial conditions have tightened substantially. They're very, very tight relative to, to, to where we have been uh, over the last uh, certainly a few years here. And uh, the jobs report was right here. And the jobs report popped up and re-tightened financial conditions. So I don't think you're in a situation where you could say that, oh, financial conditions are super loosey-goosey, uh, like the days of quantitative easing. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because there's this bear who posts on Twitter and he's like, oh, financial conditions are super loose. I'm like, what are you smoking? It's way tighter than what it was at the beginning of last year. And this is when we had the you know giant inflation crisis. So this is something we want to pay attention to. Generally, we want to see that stay relatively tight, right? And so what are markets pricing in right now? Well, if we look at the Fed rate monitor for March, we are looking at a 90.8% chance of a 25 basis point hike. That would bring us to 4.75. For the month thereafter, we're sitting at a (laughs) uh, 69.8% chance of hiking another 25 basis points. That would bring us to about five. And then in June we're pricing in only a 28% chance of a hike to 5.25%. And instead, 15% chance that the Fed actually cuts rates 25 basis points. So, uh, or, or that could be representative of a pause of the prior. Probably unlikely to be a cut. Uh, and then a 53% chance that we stay stable. So, markets are pretty well believing that We're still, we've still got a couple 25 BP hikes in front of us, but then we're looking at a pause. And after that pause, then, uh, it's just going to turn into the question of, okay, well, when does the Fed pivot? Which yesterday we discussed that the Fed pivoting is a sign that we are winning on inflation and it is the best possible news ever. Unlike those charts that people who don't like to think next level, uh, end up circulating saying, oh, when the Fed pivots, the market crashes more. I'm not. I'm not going to go through it again. I'm not. I, I explained it yesterday. The Fed pivot aligns with winning on inflation in this cycle. Whatever. All right. Uh, now another thing that we can do is we can understand because tomorrow we have another catalyst coming out. Tomorrow, the next catalyst that we have coming out is the uh, uh, University of Michigan sentiment uh, report. And the U of M Michigan uh, sentiment report will also give us inflation expectations. We actually expect them on the one year to rise to 4% versus the prior release of 3.9%. It's too high, right? We got to get that down. However, fortunately, long-term inflation expectations remain anchored at 2.9% as the expectation for tomorrow. Great. Fantastic. We also just had initial jobless claims beat a little bit coming in at 196,000 versus 190. Fine. Now, What's another thing that we can do? Because there are two main sets of inflation expectations we want to pay attention to. Number one, University of Michigan. Uh, Number two, we look at the bond market. You can look at something known as the five or the 10-year break-even inflation rate. And this has been a slight bit problematic, okay? In fairness, this is a little bit of a warning. And it's a little problematic that, yeah, there's a chance the Fed's going to have to keep rates a little bit higher for longer. And it's not great. So I'm going to show you the chart because I don't like it when this happens, but it is what it is. And I'm not going to hide it from you because I'd rather tell you about it and we can address it. The five-year breakeven inflation rate has unfortunately popped up. You can see that the five-year breakeven inflation rate is sitting at 2.47%. I believe that in order for the Federal Reserve to pivot, this needs to get down to about 1.6% which is around the levels of where it was in 2018 when the Federal Reserve flipped, well, unfortunately, it's popped up. It's not good. Uh, we are at the highest levels that we've seen since about the end of November. Now, as long as we continue this downtrend, it's good. But we do not want to see this start breaking and making new highs over relative to uh, the second half of last year. So we have to absolutely pay attention to this. Let's take a brief listen over here to see if there's any commentary coming from this guy over here. Hold on, from the, the Fed.
1: Industries, being in Pebble Beach and talking to a bunch of the CEOs there, it really feels like um, most CEOs are a little concerned about the broader economy, but most of them feel pretty good about their own businesses. Is that what you heard, too? Absolutely. Uh, so noticeably, we saw that um, the expectations going forward have moved very positive. So when we asked them about the likely outlook over the next um, six months the last time around roughly 74 percent of them said do they expect things to worsen over the next six months in this survey that number went down to only 48 percent. so i think it's fair to say the majority of them are feeling much better and they think things will probably be gradually improving
0: this Uh, is good this is the former vice chair of the federal reserve Uh, Mr. Ferguson here. However, 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 it's one of the reasons you're starting to see some areas of inflation expectations rise. And this is the weird thing about the soft landing. Okay, the crazy thing about the potential for a soft landing is that it it in order to engineer the soft landing. I'm just I'll, I'll I'll like picture this. Okay, imagine you're a plane. Okay, you're coming in for a landing. And, and and don't get me wrong here, okay? I, I had like 2 weeks of thinking I was going to become a pilot and then I quickly flip-flopped on that idea. So so I don't blame me if this uh, explanation is not great. Let's say as you're coming in for the soft landing, you get these crazy uh you, you know wind shears that are that are pushing you all over the place. As you're trying to land this plane on the soft landing, What you're trying not to do is crash, right? So you don't want to get slammed into the ground. Getting slammed into the ground would be a recessionary force, right? Would be too much of an economic slowdown because you don't want to crash. You don't want to push the economy into a recession. But you also don't want to push up inflation too much because then you never come in for the landing and then you have to stay aggressive for longer and then things could get worse because you could run out of gas. Okay, running out of gas is like inflation expectations going up and it's really bad because it shows you're not capable of landing it, right? You got to be able to stick it. So you don't want wind pulling you up and you don't want wind crashing you into the ground. But it's a very windy day. So this landing isn't going to look like a smooth landing. Uh, Even though the goal is that the wheels touch softly on the ground, in my opinion, it's going to be very much like that which is basically like a very st- aggressively drawn swiggly line and even when we hit it's going to be very like it's going to be like one of those bumpy air uh, landings it's going to be like a it's going to be like a Ryanair landing okay you come in for the landing you're like oh god Ryanair landing brace for impact and you're just going to go bouncing along the runway because you know you paid $49 for your flight <laughs> and uh, and 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 you know the time that you actually have a soft landing everybody's like did that just happen? And then everybody claps, (laughs) right? So uh, that I think is is the goal. But uh, I think uh, uh, in in the the interim, we're going to get data on both sides. It's going to look, oh my gosh, this is hot. This is good. Oh my gosh, this is bad. This is bad, right? And I think that's all part of the nature of trying to come in for a soft landing. I think the big risks that we have right now or that inflation expectations run away, and the Fed says, look, we're staying at 5.1% until 2024, and the market, I'm not sure, has priced in rates staying higher longer. Uh, However, uh, the market's also been fearful about an earnings recession, so in a weird way, if the economy picks up and lightens up, then maybe you don't have as bad of an earnings recession, and the nominal earnings recession that has been priced in is actually even too much, and this is why you end up having what I've been calling the Nike swoosh stock market recovery, so as we're trying to stick that landing, you could actually still have this rapid decline in stock prices, that was 2022, which is sort of your uh, uh, crash that was three times as fast as the dot-com crash, and then you have that Nike swoosh slow sort of recovery, I think that's what we're seeing now, I definitely think there'll still be legs down, but uh, I'm I'm, uh, overall, the, the data that we're seeing, people are asking me, they're like, Kevin, but, but this is hot. Oh, but this is weak or whatever. So far, what I'm looking at is relatively consistent with what I would expect for a soft landing. I'm not like, as soon as everything points one direction, that's when you get concerned. And I'm not talking about the band either. I'm talking about in January, 2020, every company is telling you we have massive inflationary issues and we're raising prices like crazy. The only earnings called so far that I've seen where people are talking about raising prices is Unilever. And uh, they're like, yeah, we're going to have to raise prices like maybe one more time on some shampoos, but but that's it, we're done. Like, everybody else is like, we're not raising prices. And the companies that are like, yeah, we're raising prices, they're like, yeah, we, we like Pepsi, well, we raise prices less than our costs increase, but we did have to raise a little bit. And uh, yeah, we, we don't want to raise anymore. Like, people are losing the ability to raise prices. Price elasticity is going away. Again, these things are consistent with the soft landing. So that's my thesis. Uh, uh, y- you know, Kevin is the oxygen mask that pops down and gives you a slight bit of hope. Damn it, Steve. <laughs> oh man, that's a good one. All right, so, all right. Some, some of my latest thoughts on the Fed. <sighs> okay, now we need to talk about Tucker. Damn it, Tucker. Tucker. All right, this one's this one's actually pretty entertaining. Oh, and then Steve, don't worry, we're gonna be talking about Dell soon too. Maybe if I get to it. <laughs> oh damn. Okie dokie here. Let's see what we got here, Tucker. So yesterday I tweeted this, and uh, people got mad at me for tweeting this, but but then again, you know, people get mad at me every day. Uh, I, I think they're they're like. I think there are like 10 people in the world that just wake up every day and they're like, what has Kevin done wrong today? And it's like, what a sad life people must live to, to live like that. Uh, you know, I, I wish them help. Maybe they need to get some friends. Uh, anyway, all right, let's see here. What do we got? Oh, there it is. All right, so, stand by. We are going to talk about this in a moment. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Stephen Kevin, a love story in the making. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The market is pricing in rate cuts in twenty three and a pause in May. Last I looked, yeah, yeah. Plane pulls up at the last second, trying to set it down. Yeah, the, the plane tries to land, and the plane's a FedEx plane, and realizes there's a Southwest plane right below him <laughs> No, that's terrible. That's true. That just happened, by the way. That's an FAA disaster, mind you. Uh, complete disaster. Okay, it actually looks like it's probably going to take a moment before I can pull this up. Dang it. I wanted to pull this up sooner. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe there's another way I can find it. We will find it. Uh, 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 uh. uh okay, let's give a moment here to Jim Cramer. Let's listen in.
1: He thinks the NBA is very good. Look, overall, there's more accountability. That's what Peltz wanted. Uh, obviously, modest dividend. Uh, the people were let go, I, that's a very big restructuring give me. I don't know. I was terrific. I obviously hate it when anyone gets fired. But, Joe, I think he's going to bring back the magic, so to speak. And I, I was thrilled with what he did. Just thrilled. It was fantastic. What does uh, – if you were running it, Jim, what, what would you, how would you see the, the future of, of the media conglomerate? What, what, what do you put your biggest bets on? Well, I think that you have to be, uh, be Disney Plus. I think that they ultimately could—you know—they don't even need to bundle at a certain point. I know that uh, that the regular broadcast business what did do better. I think that was a rare spike, frankly. But Disney Plus is a winner. I know that if I were uh, Bob Iger, I'd be trying to figure out how do we get more theme parks because the theme parks numbers were extraordinary. I mean, people are traveling. They all believe life's too short. They're going to Disney World. Bob has a very good hand here that was obscured by management that I think really couldn't shoot straight. And you, you think that the, that, I mean, there are, you could, you could split all these companies off. Cruise, I mean, they're, they're, they got so many, but you think that it works. You think that you got the theme park, so you have the, you know, animated movies, so you put the avatar part of the theme park goes down.
0: So you think that it does make sense I don't, why ESPN? I guess, how do you figure that? You know, I just saw a comment about Disney. Disney, uh, Bob Igar's pulling an an interesting move here. And I actually kind of like it. First of all, Disney Plus has had its first loss reported of 2.4 million subscribers. Now they're looking at licensing their content because they're seeing revenue decline. But I love it. Because guess what he's doing? Not only is he going in cleaning house and firing people who shouldn't be there, the extra the extra people that they don't need. And I know that sounds terrible. That's why they call it cleaning house. But anyway, he's actually coming out with sequels to the profitable things like Frozen, Zootopia, Toy Story 5. Like, this guy's smart. The guy comes in and goes, look, if we ain't making money, stop spending money on it. Cut. And not only are we going to cut where we're not making money anymore, but guess what else we're going to do? We are going to invest where we actually do make money. It's brilliant. It's so like simply brilliant. I love it. I think it's fantastic. So, uh, you know, great job so far on by a uh, Bob Igar uh, Iger and, and his, uh, initial transformation here that he's working on. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to see how it uh, continues to move. So, uh, let's see here. Now we've got to talk while we wait for, well, I actually don't think I'm going to be able to get this in time. I really wanted, I have this clip of Tucker, uh, and really wanted to play it, but I might, you know, I have an idea. Okay. I can, I can get, I'll figure this out. I'll make it work. Uh, in the meantime, while I make that work, we are also going to talk about, uh, what's going on with the CPI projection. So I think that'll be, um, quite interesting because, uh, CPI, or as we like to say, CPI, Uh, is something we all want to pay attention to because the next report comes up very soon. Very soon. Uh, Which is kind of crazy to think about that we're already almost on the next CPI report. It's on uh, February 14th, which who decides to make that on Valentine's Day? Uh, That just seems like wrong. Uh, I don't don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe it'll be a lovely report. I suppose, I guess we, we wait to find out what happens first. Uh, and then we'll pass judgment. Who knows? All right, let's get let's get into those previews here. We going to talk about CPI inflation and the projections for what CPI is going to look like going forward. The next CPI report is on February 14th, and boy oh boy, the numbers for the projected CPI are not good. And that's because some of the data that we're starting to get is coming in hot again including what's going on in the car market and boy, it is weird, but it actually sets us up for a dangerous middle ground. Now that sounds interesting. Like politically being in the middle is often deemed like neutral, right? This is not a neutral middle ground. This is a hell of a middle ground. And I'm going to reveal that middle ground to you. So first let's hit the projections. And we got to talk about that hellish middle ground because that hellish middle ground is a big problem. It is not the middle ground that you think it is. All right, so what do we have first on projections? Well, first on projections, CPI month over month in the last report was negative 0.1%. What is the CPI projection for this month over month report? 0.5. 0.5. That's huge. 0.5 represents an annualized inflation rate of 6%. It is way too hot. Now, I don't know if the market's gonna sell off right before the CPI print or what, but that CPI number is scary high on the month-over-month basis. If you strip out food and energy, because we know food costs and uh, like eggs, for example, even though eggs have recently fallen around 50%, they're still way more expensive than they were a year ago substantially. I mean, you're paying like a buck more, uh, which from an egg point of view on dozen eggs is, is like basically almost paying double uh, for a dozen eggs. It's insane. But anyway, even if you strip out the more volatile food and energy component, you're still looking at 0.4% month-over-month projected. Now, that's uh, slightly up from the 0.3% we had last month, but still, that's 4.8% annualized inflation. That's bad on the month-over-month read. Sure, the headline number goes from 6.5 to 6.2, but because that core number is staying strong, it kind of doesn't imply that we're going to get this rapid disinflation continuing the way we hope. Now, that creates some nervousness in the market. And what we want to do is try to understand why. Why is there this this hole in CPI projections uh, to where all of a sudden we think CPI will rise again? Well, one of the reasons has to do with a surprise in used vehicle prices last month, adding to, well, not only car buyer frustrations because prices are starting to go up again for used cars rather than down, but the magnitude was pretty large not only have used car prices now gone up for two months in a row, but between December and January, used car prices jumped month over month, 2.5%. And I hate to say it, but you could do some very simple math here. If you do simple math and you take 2.5% and then you weight it, weight like, like an anchor, right? Like an, a, a, an anchor weight. You weight it by 4.5%. So 0025 uh, times 0.045, you're going to see that you could actually see the month over month inflation numbers move up 1.1 percentage points on a month over month basis, uh, or, or I should say 0.11 percentage points on a month over month basis, solely from used cars, solely from one thing, used cars, and those prices are skyrocketing. I'm going to draw that out for you because it's, it, I understand it's going to sound a little complicated when you start talking about all these small numbers. I'm usually used to talking about big numbers around here. Uh, and, and when we start talking about like micro things, it's 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 a lot harder to grasp. And I understand. I think all all the, the meat Kevin watchers uh, are a fan of big numbers too. But anyway, looking at small numbers, okay? The last month over month read was one percent uh, on a month over month. Uh, change. Well, used car prices alone, if we start at zero, used car prices alone are going to bump that zero by 0.11%. So in other words, solely because of one part of the CPI read, you're going to see the month over month CPI read go up by 0.1% solely because of cars. Now, we expect the month-over-month core read, which does include those core prices or uh, used car prices, to be 0.4%. 0.11 of that alone is used cars, which only makes up 4.5%. So that means 0.11 is coming, and you still have over 95% of the report to go. That's not great. The used car numbers are a problem. And not only are they an issue... But according to the car dealership guy, they're actually potentially getting worse. This isn't great. I've said before, I encourage you to follow this guy. I think he's great. Hopefully, you'll follow me on Twitter as well, at RealMeKevin. But anyway, he says this. I can't stress this enough. The pace at which used car prices are rising at dealer auctions right now is absolutely baffling. As of this morning, auction prices were much higher than January. Well, that's not good. I don't want to hear that. How do we get out of the cycle? Low supply leads to higher prices. Higher prices lead to lower sales forecasts, which lowers the production and the cycle goes on. So he's a little bearish on the idea that used car prices could actually go back down. But the problem with this is if car prices are still rising and the market is hotter than in previous years and it's only re-accelerating and the official numbers will come out in two or three weeks and he's sort of given us this sort of like his, he runs a car dealership, right? That's why his name is Car Dealership Guy. Anyway, if his impression is that the numbers are getting worse and so far the official numbers over the last two months have been worse, it's a problem. Now, it is potentially possible that we could look at this and say, look, that's the nature of a soft landing. You have some increase in demand. People are excited again that maybe we're not gonna go through a hellish hellish recession. So they're getting themselves a, a used car again. So you're getting volatility that's one way. If you wanted to put on the the bullish hat, you look at this and you call it volatility. If you were a bear, you look at this and go, disinflation? What disinflation? And so the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but it's a problem. It's a problem that you have used car prices popping off and the expectations for the inflation read are not that fantastic. And you've got the break-even rate of inflation jumping to levels we haven't seen since November. So there's some red flags that suggest this next CPI report could be slightly painful. It also doesn't help that the CEO of Hertz, you know, the company that went bankrupt but had this massive amount of used car inventory that became extremely valuable, which ended up saving the company and helping bail them out and letting them reorganize. Well, anyway, they say that the company is seeing big, jumps in the prices over the last five weeks, both at auction and at cars sold to retail in the used car markets. Used car retail sales were up 16% from a sales point of view over December and 5% from a year ago, though used cars are still about 15% less expensive than they were a year ago. So year over year, the numbers are good, but the month over month is concerning. And usually we look at month over month numbers. Now, the good news is, uh, and and now this could be biased, okay? I understand this. But there is a uh, White House Council of Economic Advisors and they decided to put together a new wage series tracking measure to only track wages that go into super core prices. Super core is what the Fed is paying attention to to see are we actually going to see disinflation here. This is where we talk about you know Chipotle seeing lower labor costs, many businesses seeing lower labor costs, those are disinflationary indicators. And we know it takes a lot longer for housing to disinflate and for uh, wage services, wage-based services to to start deflating, right? We know that takes time. Well, look at what the Council of uh, the, the White House Economic Council of uh, Economic Advisors put together. They say that this chart right here is the uh, hourly wages chart at a three-month annualized change. And you can see it is very nicely fallen. Now, don't get me wrong. We want to see people make more money, but we don't want people to be making nine, 10% more money in hourly wages because that leads to an inflationary spiral, a wage price spiral, and then you have to get Paul Volcker. Fortunately, even though we have uh, bad news in that used car data. It looks like we're getting good news in the wage data. Now, this brings up the question about the middle ground. Okay, this middle ground is an interesting thesis. And I want you to think about this because I think it's very important for your investing future. The middle ground. And and, and keep in mind, like I try my best to provide you value that you don't go get anywhere else or at least perspective. And it doesn't mean I'm right about everything. It's just I try to give you perspective. So, let's pretend we uh we are driving down a road okay and and we're going we're going downhill okay inflation is 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 disinflating right and this disinflation is driven by goods disinflation well the goods disinflation according to bloomberg is expected to be over by june okay so we hit a bottom in the the basically goods Uh, disinflation dragging the markets down, right? Or or dragging inflation down, I should say. Well, then we expect that at some point in the future, wage inflation and housing inflation is going to come down, right? But before those come down, you could be in this terrible middle ground. I'll go ahead and say July, August, September. Let's just call that the, the summer hell. And the reason it's the summer hell is because you don't actually start seeing housing or goods disinflation, or housing or wage disinflation yet. You actually start seeing inflation popping off again. So now it's kind of like you're getting the speed bump in the road, and it's actually expected to come back down. You get this sort of temporary goods reinflation. Maybe it's driven by China, maybe it's driven by Americans, I don't know. And it's not until the second half, like the, the actually probably the last quarter of the year that you end up getting past that hump. And now what actually drives down the market uh, or inflation, when I say market, I mean inflation, what drives down inflation is housing, which is your sort of level two of disinflation, goods being level one, Uh, and then wages, wage disinflation being level three. That kind of sucks because it means you still got another humpy dumpy to get through. On top of that, you got stuff happening like earthquakes in Turkey, which I understand people like, haven't, I understand you're sad about people losing their lives in Turkey. I know, I mentioned it like every live stream and I, it's, it's a pisser. I, I, I'm so devastated by what's going on over there. It's just, it's children and families, uh, go hug your loved ones, okay? Anyway, what's happening with Turkey? Well, now there are suggestions uh, that Turkish, uh, that, that uh, countries, including the United States, rely on Uh, uh, imports of certain metals and we could actually see steel disruptions due to damages of ports uh, in in the Turkish region. For example, while Turkish steel uh, accounts for only about 4% of uh, 2022 uh, US imports of steel, uh, we we import about 7% of our long steel products. These are like uh, railroads uh, or like uh, like railroad tracks or rebar, which we use in construction stuff. We import about almost twice as much, about 7% of our long products from Turkey. Turkey likes things long. Uh, and, uh, and, and as a global long product per exporter, they make up about 11% of the global market. And so there's an expectation that a lot of metals uh, are going to be affected uh, by these Turkish disruptions uh, and that could imp- increase input costs producer price costs which potentially could flow through uh, through consumer prices so all of these little shocks that we get they, they they make the road a lot bumpier so far and fortunately it doesn't seem like there are are these these terrible catalysts that suggest oh my gosh is this going to be the black swan that destroys everything but it's important I mean, Goldman Sachs had a whole piece on it. The impact of Turkey earthquakes on global steel markets. Now, no notable damage to steel mills. However, we highlight likely supply chain disruptions, particularly given damage at various ports. Particular one, we talked about some of the percentages. And the point is, all of the issues that we face in our economy get complicated by the normal oopsie doopsies that happen in life, whether it's nature or just normal oopsie doopsies. And everything is just going to seem more frustrating in 2023 because everything that happens, like this car uh, information or this uh, turkey metal information, what this ends up doing is creating uncertainty. It creates fear, it creates uncertainty, and it just makes it less clear as to whether or not we're actually on that path to a soft landing. So it's something to keep in mind. But those are the CPI projections. I will obviously be streaming uh, the CPI report at 5.30 a.m. Uh, on February 14th. So mark your calendar for that, and I'll see you there. All right. Now we got to talk about the Nord Stream. Oh, boy. That's going to be a fun one. So stand by for one second as I get ready to talk about the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, this is where you get, like, people tell you, oh, you're going to put the tinfoil hat on. It's all right. That's fine, no. Yeah, you could be. You could be angry. <laughs> it's okay. All right. So, stand by. All uh, right. <laughs> this will be quite interesting. Seven seconds. We've got to talk about the Nord Stream pipeline because, boy, about four months ago, people were going nuts over the Nord Stream pipeline getting blown up. In fact, four months ago, there were a lot of rumors that the United States was clearly behind the Nord Stream 2 pipeline explosion. And of course, a lot of folks just called that straight up Russian disinformation because the idea was that, oh, why would Russia blow up their own pipeline? They don't need to blow it up. They could just turn off the tap on one side. Why would they blow up uh, this this uh, incredible infrastructure that they have to be able to export their natural gas to Europe? You know, at some point, we hope that the war ends and Russia would be able to go back and supply natural gas. Now, that was one argument. But why, why would Why would Russia blow up their own pipeline? Of course, the more mainstream argument Was that, well, Russia would blow it up because they know that Europe's already going to say, you know what, we're never going back to buying your natural gas. Uh, Whether or not the war is over or what, we're done with Russian gas and we're not going to use your Nord Stream pipeline anyway. That's another argument. That's sort of the the argument that says, oh yeah, Russia did do it. And so you have these arguments on both sides. You also, uh, both sides, you also have this argument that why would the United States uh, uh, bomb the Nord Stream Pipeline? That is going to release an insane amount of methane into our atmosphere, and it's going to basically double the rate of global warming that we potentially experience within the span of one year, right? Because of the amount of methane that's released. And so a lot of folks are like, no, it had to have been Russia because the United States would never do such a thing. Now, I tweeted about this article Uh, who was put together by a Seymour Hersh. Now, Seymour Hersh used to work for uh, the New York Times. He's also worked for the New York Post. Uh, And so he's been a journalist for a while. And we don't know with certainty that the information that he presents is absolutely accurate. But Seymour Hersh provides an example of what could have actually happened. He believes that what he describes is actually how the Nord Stream pipelines were taken down. Now, I tweeted about Seymour's article yesterday morning and folks told me that I was pushing Russian disinformation, which who knows? You know, okay, maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe Seymour Rush is paid off or Hersh is paid off by the Russians. Later in the day, Tucker Carlson covered the article in light detail, not super detail. I'll play a part of what he says here in a moment. But his actual article is really fascinating. And whether it's true or not, I want you to know how they pulled it off, how they potentially used sonar technology to activate exactly their plan. And it's very fascinating. And I want you to hear about it. But first, we're going to listen to Tucker's take uh, on, uh, on on part of it because he's going to set the groundwork for us. Then I'm going to go a little bit deeper into it. So uh, let's listen to Tucker's take on it and then we'll go a little bit deeper on it. Here we go. Let's check in $1 bills for the Hooters Girls. Hold be up on. We're still on San Francisco. Here we go. Now we're getting to the story. So before the war in Ukraine even began, both Tori and Newland at the State Department, the number two of the State Department, and Joe Biden threatened to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. Watch. I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream Two will not move
1: forward. If Russia invades. Uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again. Then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. It, we we will bring an end to it. But do, but how will you how will you do that exactly? Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control, we will. Uh, I promise you we'll be able to do
0: it. Now, I'm just going to pause there for a moment and say, look, those two clips right there are are kind of, these are the clips that Russia ended up sharing. Russia ended up sharing Joe Biden saying that and and, and Russia saying, look, we didn't blow it up. Look at Joe Biden implying before we even invaded that he's going to basically end the Nord Stream pipeline. Now, what's crazy about this is potentially what ended up happening. Okay? So there's this guy, and we'll go back to the opinion here on, on, on the video, but there's this guy, Seymour Rush, again, he sorry, it was not the New York Post, it was the New Yorker. He wrote for decades for the New York Times and the New Yorker, and he published a bombshell on Substack. And he said that the U.S. was actually the country at hand who blew up the russia germany pipeline as part of a covert operation under the guise of the baltic operations a number 22 nato exercise okay that's that's his opinion he says he relies on unnamed national security forces now usually because this is obviously being picked up more by the right usually the right likes to say oh sure unnamed surf- sources so it's kind of like both sides do it but whatever 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 this guy alleges that the pentagon has been planning to blow up the nord stream pipeline since December of 2021 and that the Navy originally proposed. So I went through the Substack piece. And, and so it, it gives you a little bit more detail than kind of what we got. Uh, and I, I actually think the detail is what's fascinating about the idea of how this could happen. So anyway, uh, the, the author proposes that the Navy wanted to use a submarine to directly assault the pipelines. However, uh, oh, and there were also discussions about potentially just dropping bombs from uh, from planes. Uh, that uh, that would not detonate on impact with the water, but it would then fall down to where the Nord Stream pipeline is, and then they could be remotely detonated on time. However, the CIA allegedly came out and suggested, "Hey, we need to be very covert uh, with uh, with with our operation here. We don't want anybody realizing that." Oh, The United States is behind the Nord Stream 2 pipeline blow up because then we're going to get reamed from a climate point of view because we're going to release all this methane. And even though it'll severely weaken Russia's ability to export gas in the future and the reliance uh, of Europe on Russia's natural gas will go away. Uh, because there will be no more pipeline, which means, Hey, maybe, maybe now they have to rely more on the United States, right? Because our, uh, natural gas and oil industry has actually been booming, especially since, uh, uh fracking has become a lot more popular. So anyway, CIA is like, no, 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 this needs to be co- covert. So instead, apparently and allegedly the CIA works with Navy divers under significant pushback, but eventually the the CIA suggests we need to find a way to blow up the pipelines using divers. And so apparently they work with the Norwegian army to find out where can we set explosives. And again, this is all alleged. We don't know if this is true. It's just an interesting story is the way I look at it. The Norwegian Navy apparently found a location only about 260 feet deep within diving range for the divers. And apparently they planted C4 on four pipelines we know there were three explosions and they were covered with concrete protective covers that could be triggered at some point in the future so that way it wouldn't seem like oh somebody was just there and then it blew up right after it could be triggered at some point in the future now how they potentially triggered the C4 charges on short notice was fantastic in my opinion apparently what they wanted to do was use a plane that would drop a buoy in the water and the buoy would send a sonar signal and the sonar signal would activate the C4 charges. But the problem is in the ocean, you have a lot of animals that use sonar and you don't want to accidentally detonate it when you're not ready to. So instead, they used a sequence of sonar signals, kind of like somebody playing a flute. How eerie is this? It's like the most eerie thing ever. How eerie is that? Think about that. Like imagine you could hear the sonar and it's like somebody's playing a flute nice and peaceful, like you're on the Titanic. And as soon as the sequence completes, triggers the c C4 on the pipelines, boom, blows the pipelines up. So the Norwegian Navy apparently uh, had the sonar buoy dropped. And of course, the United States is denying this vehemently because they don't want to ever come across as potentially having created a climate disaster by blowing up these pipelines. But it's a very interesting story. Uh, Now, you know, obviously, you know, Tucker's got some pretty aggressive stances on this. Uh, He doesn't go into as much detail uh, as I do uh, on this topic. I think it's fascinating, but I want to give credit where credit is due. Credit is that four months ago, Tucker was the one shouting. Nobody else believed that it potentially could be possible that the United States was behind this. Got to give credit where credit's due. Now, we don't know if that's certainly the case, but let's just say the Nord Stream 2 pipeline went trending after this uh, on Twitter, and a lot of folks are like, ah, quite interesting, including uh, Mr. Sachs, David Sachs on Twitter. I'd like to follow him. Uh, he's, uh, he follows me, uh, which is kind of cool. But anyway, uh, David Sachs. So what did he have to say? And I thought it was an interesting point, especially in the face of a lot of the geopolitical tensions attent- that we face right now. He says... This week in foreign policy, errant balloon equals major provocation could incite war. Blown up pipeline, not a provocation, could never incite a war. And really what he's being is he's being sarcastic here. He's being facetious, suggesting that, look, everybody's so worried about this balloon. Meanwhile, here we are blowing up pipelines. Again, we'll probably never know with fact, uh, 100% certainty what happened with the pipeline. But it's very interesting. And I have to say, you know, after the last year of seeing so many conspiracy theories actually end up coming true through either the Twitter files or whatever, it just raises your eyebrows a little bit. It makes you go, mm. it is kind of interesting. You know, what else is interesting is China is making fun of us. I kid you not. China is now on the Chinese version of TikTok making memes, memes about the Chinese balloon. And I'd like to show you one of them. This is a meme of uh, uh, that, that apparently was made in China to make fun of America chasing down the Chinese spy balloon. I'll play it without audio here because if I play with audio, I'll get demonetized. Uh, I think I've already said enough to upset the apple cart. But here you go. Here goes the balloon. Oh no. The United States can't figure out how to shoot it down. Oh man, it does acrobatics. <laughs> Oh, here comes a missile. Oh, no. Uh, this is literally uh, China just making fun of America at this point. Uh, and they've played this a few times now. Uh, and, and there have been a few versions of this circulating, including versions that show, uh, that basically put the Mission Impossible theme over this. Uh, it's it's pretty, uh, pretty entertaining. And uh, yeah, anyway, there you go. Kind of shows that the way the balloon ended up actually dying was uh, the uh, the balloon crashing into the fighter jet was was the idea that uh, uh, you know the U.S. was so incapable of taking down the balloon. Now obviously we know that the U.S. actually shot down the balloon, uh, and and we don't have as much of an issue. But there are a lot of jokes going around uh, and memes going around on this with with uh, for example TikTok in particular. One of the things that I'm seeing on TikTok is uh, people are turning. The balloon into a Lego set. Now, I thought that was really interesting because uh, the, the oh, you know, <laughs> here it is. I got it. I got it. Let me see if I can pause. Yeah, here it is. Look at this. How ridiculous is this? Commemorative Chinese spy balloon, age six plus, comes with a fake handshake and includes concerned citizen. And you can assemble this 176 piece Chinese spy balloon (laughs) it's ridiculous now what's not ridiculous and in fairness is you do have the united nations warning that we are creeping towards war like world war and it's bad uh the united nations uh chief Uh, has warned that uh, he fears that further escalations in Ukraine will mean we are heading towards a worldwide war, and he thinks that the doomsday clock has been set to 90 seconds, that basically we're not even aware that we're basically sleepwalking into a wider war as we potentially increase tensions and aggressions between countries. That's not great. Anyway, that uh, gives you an update on China and the Nord Stream Pipeline. All right, so now let's go ahead and take a look at the sticks together and then we will go ahead and uh, s- head on over to the course member live stream for the market open. So usually in the course member live stream, by the way, we do a lot of fundamental analysis, whether it's on real estate, we'll also do technical analysis, whether it's on uh, or fundies on real estate and stocks and that. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking a lot about uh, companies uh, in the course member live stream today, probably like a firm, and uh I, there are some warnings that come from uh, a firm we'll also go a little bit more in, on enphase and, and some other companies we've been meaning to talk about so love to have you in those course member live streams link down below learn more about that of course but what, what do we have over here so in pre-market right now you've got purple mattress down 16 a firm down 15 percent, mattel Toy manufacturer warning that toy sales plummeted in November and October, only to slightly rebound in December. But Mattel, toy maker, down eleven percent. But then again, you, you had Hasbro come out with a uh, uh, terrible insight as well on uh, on this sector here. You've got uh, let's see, DraftKings down at seventeen bucks. My goodness. Uh, you have uh, some some smaller spacs here moving up a little bit. Twenty three and Me up about eight percent. I remember I got interviewed for a Nasdaq piece on Twenty three and Me, and I was yapping about how overvalued the darn thing was. Uh, I'm glad I said that on record because the darn thing ended up falling. You can actually Google it. Look at that, February of two thousand eleven. V, VG Acquisition Corp. SPAC deal with 23andMe is too. What was the title? Speculative. What did I say? Yeah, too speculative. Uh, and then they talk about me analyzing the SPAC deal with Kevin. <laughs> anyway, I, I I just love looking at fundies of things. Uh, Robinhood had like a 57 million dollar trading mistake. Uh, although they would have still lost uh, around 130 million dollars, their loss is shrinking. they they're spending a lot less on. Uh, on OPEX than they have in the past. Pretty impressive. Tesla right now in the pre-market up about 3.6%. Uh, and then I want to take a peek here as well at seeing what the 10-year treasure is doing. 10-year Treasury right now sitting at, uh, falling a little bit actually at uh, 3.58%. Curious to see how that moves throughout the day. That'll be fascinating. I've been on the waiting list for over two years for a family doctor. Went to the ER to look into something. Had to wait eight hours to see a doctor for two minutes. It's bad. What they saw for two minutes was bad or the weight was bad? I'm just messing with you. I hope you're okay. Uh, Hustle smart comes in saying Tesla puts. uh, Let's see here. Flat tax, push oil and gas, build pipelines, major funding for critical minerals. I don't think we're going to get a flat tax ever, but it's an idea that circulates a lot. No idea why TikTok hasn't been banned yet. Hey, 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 hey. You need to follow me on TikTok because I just posted a video uh, on T-Swizzle. And the video actually got a ton of views really fast. Uh, I mean, people love T-Swizzle, man. You wake up the Swifties, oh man. Oh man. Uh, Where is it? Uh, Oh my God, it's at 1.3 million views already. That's crazy. I usually don't get that many views. Uh, But yeah, a little Swiftie piece there. 1.3 million views in like 12 hours. Crazy. So anyway, follow me on TikTok, at RealMeKevin. Also on uh, Twitter, at RealMeKevin. Haven't been following for a while. Was wondering your thoughts. I have 160K in a high yield savings account of 4%. My yield, my lease is up in April. Better to buy now or sign a lease for another year and wait to buy in early 2024. You know, these are usually the kinds of questions I answer regularly in the course member live stream, which I'm going to go to uh, like in 10 seconds. Let me put it this way. I, I, I'll, I'll give you a freebie because I love you all for being here and I really appreciate you. Um, I believe that one of the best things uh, that you could do is look for a great deal. Get educated and try to get yourself a great wedge deal. If you could get a great wedge deal, you know, now or next month or three months, maybe that's the perfect time to strike. So that's my thesis. Uh, so I, I would start your hunt, but don't, don't buy something off the shelf right now, in my opinion. All right. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you in the next one. Go to the course member live stream now. Goodbye.